Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. This is J.F. Martell. In the first part of our conversation on Herman Hesse's Glass Bead Game, we discuss the enigmatic centerpiece of that novel, the game itself. In the second part, we're talking about the cultural and historical implications of the fictional game and the monastic order for whom it represents a new understanding of our place in the universe. As Phil eloquently puts it, many of us moderns are rather well acquainted with Glass Bead Games that is, with cultural activities that seem divorced from the immediate concerns of the day. Sometimes it may seem like most cultural practices that aren't eminently monetizable are glass bead games of a sort. Think of the preservation of dying languages, for instance, or the performance of certain kinds of music, or the academic study of music, or literature for that matter. People who work to keep these things alive are few and far between, and if you're one of them, Sooner or later, you're going to ask yourself the question, what's the point? What is the value of this thing in which no one else seems to see anything worth preserving? Hesse's answer here is interesting. There is a pattern to what humans do and to what they observe in nature and the cosmos. No single people or era gets to see the whole pattern, but every one of them captures a small part of it. For the full pattern to emerge, you would need imagination to think your way beyond the confines of your isolated epoch, and memory to remember the imaginings of those who came before you. Since the pattern is infinite, it may never be fully revealed. But woe unto they who decide that there is no pattern. Okay, there is one place where the great pattern of reality can and regularly does come into view, and that, of course, is the Weird Studies Patreon, where listeners of the podcast can enjoy a bonus audio show every off week, as well as writings by the Magistry Ludi themselves. Skeptical? Why don't you sign up and find out? At worst, you'd be helping keep the show alive. Those who like their Logos delivered orally, and that's A-U-orally, could do worse than download Pierre-Yves' Weird Studies, music from the podcast Volume 1, now available on vinyl and CD on Pierre-Yves' Bandcamp page. Just Google Weird Studies Bandcamp to find it. We hope you enjoy the second and final part of our discussion on Herman Hesse's The Glass Bead Game. Speed Game Part Two: The Revenge <laughs> of Connect. Yeah, we don't have to keep that. Does, does he get <laughs> in a world? <laughs> oh yeah, and and then you should hear like the the single piano note in a reverberant space. Bing. 
And then a, a, a camera sweeps across a city skyline. <laughs> yeah. Fade to black. Another piano note. A scholar monk <laughs> goes, for a, goes for a morning swim. And it's like you see the lake where in the last movie he disappeared and all of a sudden this bam, this hand comes out of the lake. <laughs> <laughs> it's zombie Joseph Knecht. His face has got like fucking worms crawling out of it. Yeah. And he's like clawing like a bloated his way. corpse. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways. Il doom. <laughs> Do uh, you know the Dewey Decimal System? <laughs> you remember that? <laughs> no. UHF. The dis- oh, Conan the, Conan, Conan the Librarian. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay, now it's, it all comes back to me. <laughs> okay. All right, seriously. Yeah, we must be serious. This is a serious novel. Yeah. Well, it it's is. a novel of ideas. Yeah. No jokes in this one. Um, no, not enough of our clownish japes. So I kind of did something a little naughty. I wrote and recorded the intro for the first Glass Bead Game show and used it to basically set the agenda for this show. We'd agreed on doing another show about it. I, it made me, I felt a little bad because I was like, well, now that it's like published, JF has no has choice. No, yeah. No choice. I've locked him down. It yeah. was very clever. Uh, although that is obviously the place left to go. Okay, so in case you haven't listened to the previous episode, in case you haven't listened to my... Previously uh, on Weird Studies. Fuck was I going to say? I'm sorry. Uh, so what... I, <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's fine. Okay, so I say like what we didn't talk about is what happens after Knecht becomes the Magister Ludi, the master of the glass bead game. Mm-hmm. And what happens is that a kind of deep questioning that's always been a part of Knecht's makeup begins to reassert itself. And somebody who has devoted his life to the service of something beautiful, kind of something esoteric and rare fragile and worthy of protection, the glass bead game, after a lifetime devoted to its service, he begins to question it. Well, he doesn't just begin to, he resumes questioning it. Mm -hmm. He has questioned it in a sense his entire life. And the questioning of it is not in any way a dissonant element added to this life of selfless service. From a certain point of view, from Knack's point of view, the point of view that he argues in a climactic argument he has with the head of his order, it is precisely his spirit of service that has led him to entertain doubts about the glass bead game. Yes. That has led him to the extraordinary point of resigning his position. He offers his resignation to the order. And this is something unheard of. It's a little bit like um, the previous pope. What's his name? The dude that looked like Emperor Palpatine. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Rats- R- Joseph Ratzinger. Ratzinger. I almost called Ratzenberger, which is the name of the guy who was in Cheers. Right. Um, like one of the actors. <laughs> It'd be great if that guy were pope, though. Hey, I see a high concept comedy <laughs> in here. <laughs> Uh, Meet John. 
and remember John? I don't know. We can maybe add in some wacky yeah. like music. It starts at cheers. He's about like, to be Pope. Whatever happened know. to John? And then it cuts to the a shot of the Vatican, <laughs> like record scratch. Yeah. <laughs> Um, are we ever going to start talking about this fucking book? I'm sorry. It's my fault. I take full responsibility. I acknowledge the corn. So Ratzinger. Yeah. Acknowledge the corn. Maybe we'll get to explaining what that means later on. Uh, Let's not go there now, though. (laughs) I think people are getting impatient. (laughs) Um, so yeah. So, so, so just, you know, like that was a controversy, wasn't it? Like a sitting Pope isn't supposed to resign being pope it was the first time since the renaissance i think that that happened so right uh yeah it's not something you see yeah so this is a comparable situation where the office so greatly dwarfs the individual human being who occupies it It is almost literally unthinkable for knesh to take the step he takes and you realize that this is the entire raison d'etre of this book. That is to say, not the book that Hesse wrote, but the imaginary book. That the narrator is uh, writing, that, yeah. That, yeah, that the scribal narrator has written and also assembled from Knecht's juvenilia, because there's this 100-page appendix at the back that collects Knecht's surviving writings. And... The framing conceit of the book is sort of like we must try to understand the enigma of Knecht's choice. Mm-hmm. We must come to an understanding in order to adjudicate the question that has, you know, consumed the pedagogical province in argumentation. Like you get the sense that Knecht's action and what happened to him subsequently, his untimely death in a mountain lake. You get the impression that this shook the institution to its very foundations. And we are told that all of Castalia divided into pro-Knecht and anti-Knecht factions. The strong implication is that in doing this, it actually ended up renewing the sense of like skin in the game, the sense that there is something at stake in the glass bead game. So there is a certain sense, not so much stated as implied, that Knecht isn't just the victim of an unfortunate accident at the end when he drowns, but something almost like a martyr or somebody offering himself in sacrifice, that is like the sacrifice of himself for the greater glory of the glass bead game. Yeah. So... This to me is interesting because the glass bead game I've used for years before I even read this novel, I used the phrase glass bead game as uh, an expression to denote a kind of precious, self-referential, artificial, intellectual game divorced from human life and the dirty, down-to-earth realities of human creativity. If anybody calls something a glass bead game, that is generally the implication. But the thing is, the novel itself raises the possibility repeatedly that that's all the glass bead game is. 
but it refuses to give up on the glass bead game, just as Kanesht, even in his apostasy, never really gives up on the glass bead game. And for that reason, I really wanted to record a second mm, show. Yeah. Because I wanted to talk about that as something that is a part of my own life. As I said in the intro to the show last week, I have devoted my own life to the service of two very glass bead game-like entities, classical music and my early life as a classical pianist, and my adult career as an academic. Academia itself, the academic humanities, is a glass bead game ne plus ultra. And anybody who's listened to the show for any length of time knows that it's something that I am deeply ambivalent about. And so I thought maybe I could work through some of my ambivalences on our show, use this as a kind of therapeutic practice. So you get to be my therapist for the next hour or so. Isn't that an exciting prospect? Yeah, and the audience gets to be the potted plant. <laughs> That's right. Um, the audience, the audience is this golden scarab. The golden scarab. I was just going to say. I was just going to say the golden <laughs> scarab on the windowsill. Fantastic. Um, all right. Well, uh, it's funny. It's okay. I'll just start with my immediate reaction to what you just said, which is that it's strange because this is symptomatic of my uh, kind of weird position on the intellectual map, if there is such a thing. Like I am. I've never been part of an institution. I read The Glass Bead Game on my own time when I was in my 20s, and I absolutely fell in love with the idea of The Glass Bead Game. And to me, The Glass Bead Game, I've always used that phrase to indicate something like that one part of thinking and philosophy that actually matters. Like, it's so funny that that I've interpreted it in the opposite sense. That doesn't mean that I didn't see reading the book that there was this ambiguity. But for me, the ideal of a glass bead game has always been something noble, attractive. And to be honest, I've always linked the glass bead game to role-playing games. Because I think that the role-playing game is the only game where you could combine a line of Plato with uh, a chess strategy and then uh, with, I don't know, uh, a Nork smoking a cigar. You know, like those things could all be <laughs> become really relevant in a moment in a game that allows for that type of play. So I've always had a kind of philosophical interest in the idea of the Glass B game. And I admit that even on this read, I was almost completely focused on the mechanics and the philosophy of, of the ontology of the game and in the implications of the game. The way I was reading it, the whole arc of the institutional devotee who decides to leave, to me, that was just the kind of uh, clothesline on which you hung the actual tapestry of the novel, which was the game. So spinning it this way is great. This is why we need a second show, because I think that in the first show, we did concentrate on the game, as you mentioned in in your intro to that episode. It's interesting that he says that the glass bead game began as a musicological exercise. It started in musicology. So which can, can you gentle listener is my academic field. Exactly. Exactly. Because musicology is a really interesting intellectual discipline. Because and I think I, like to I think, think so. I think Hesse was right to pick that as the place where such a game would appear. Because musicology 
is an abstract, and I don't mean abstract in a negative sense, an abstract kind of, in its essence, I know there's much more to musicology than this, but in its essence, it's an attempt to conceptualize music, right? And, Mm -hmm. And the attempt to conceptualize music, that conceit seems to really touch on the dichotomy of concept and affect, the central concern of Hesse's work, not just in this book, his entire yeah. literary of, because he does not want to reject the concept, but he doesn't want to embrace the concept at the expense of the affect. He doesn't want to, right. all of his stories, even the three lives at the end, they're all about how a person manages to live a life of the spirit while remaining in the world, how to bring, how to mm-hmm. square the circle, how to bring these seemingly opposite forces to align with one another. And I think that that's essentially what musicology is. I mean, for me as an outsider, if I were to romanticize your discipline, I would see it as something like that, an attempt to bring these incommensurate things together without losing either of them. Is that? I think that's, yeah. I think that's wonderfully well said. Now, if, you know, people lose themselves in arguments about what musicology is, and it certainly has changed in the last 30 or so years from, uh, field exclusively focused on music of what's called the Western art music tradition, or but I prefer just calling it classical music because everybody knows what that means. And it no longer is solely concerned with that tradition or even preponderantly anymore. A huge amount of musicology concerns popular music and uh, not wanting to get into a definition of what popular music is either. Nevertheless, all terminological and methodological wrangles off to one side. I think if we're looking at this from like a 30,000 foot view, sort of a God's eye view here, I think what you said is absolutely right. And I, I certainly respond to that personally, because what you've characterized is also, I think, the intellectual problem of my entire life. Like it's the thing that I have wrestled with in one form or another for as long as I have had like abstract thoughts about anything. So, you know, as a pianist, I've said this in the past, uh, as a classical pianist, I was unduly influenced early on by Glenn Gould and a, a very intellectualist kind of way of approaching music where every aspect of an interpretation has to be the result of some kind of thought, some sort of analytical... Some choice, some decision. Yeah. Some decision, exactly. And I should say for people who know absolutely nothing about classical music that, you know, what you do as a classical pianist is you take compositions, things that have been notated by composers of the past, like Beethoven or Bach or whomever, and you come up with an interpretation of them. You are not simply playing the notes and rhythms exactly as they are written, because notation, for one thing, is incapable of capturing nuance or anything but a very gross-grained kind of nuance. It can give you indications But it is up to the pianist, the individual performer, to take the dead letter of the score and animate it, to give it life and energy, to give it sense, to give it meaning. That's a special kind of artistic practice, right? What's the difference between composition and performance? Well, composition Mm -hmm. 
you could say in this regard is a primary act of creation, the making of the music. And in classical music, you have this sort of secondary creation of people who take existing works and devote themselves to their elucidation, their well, their performance. Yeah. Uh, in um, French, the, the term in French is interpretation, which I've always liked, interpretation. That uh, uh, the performance is called une interpretation. I like yeah. that because it shows to what, how deeply engaged in a creative pursuit the performer is. How, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. The conceptual distinction that exists in classical music between composer and performer is much, much weaker in popular music. This is why Spotify is so frustrating if you want to find a good yeah. performance of a classical work, because the metadata just doesn't help you. No. It's a different culture. And that culture is very often misunderstood. People will look at different you know, there are different performances available of Bach's well-tempered clavier. You can listen to it on piano. You can listen to Gould play. You can listen to Rosalind Turek play it or Andras Schiff or whomever. You can also listen to it on a harpsichord. Shit, you can hear it on, uh, you can hear it on fucking Moog synthesizer, right? But the point is that for people in the classical world, those interpretations, those variant performances of these works, that makes all the difference, you know, aficionados will argue fiercely over the relative merits of Gould's versus Turek's performance of the well-tempered clavier. And if you are an artist in that medium, listening to Turek and Gould, despite their superficial similarities, it is as different as chalk from cheese. You know, they're fundamentally different artistic utterances. But to people outside of classical music culture... It's just like, why do you need two performances of the same work? Right. It doesn't seem to make sense. All of that artistry and all of that context, it's hard sometimes to communicate that outside the charmed circle of the classical music world. This is why I say the classical music world is kind of a glass bead game-like mm. world. Yeah, I see what you're saying. It is a world of passionate play. You know, when I sit down to to play something from the well-tempered clavier, for example... It's a kind of passionate play where this music is not old music. It's living music. It lives under your fingers and it's in the interpretation that its life is. And yet, who gives a shit? Like, who wants to listen to me play Bach as opposed to like a good recording? It becomes a practice almost sort of like a monk's practice, like a scribe copying out the gospels by hand, right? Like a, you know, yeah. where it's just like, yeah. like it's so significant to you, but to the outside world, it's just like, well, this furnishes us with a copy of the gospels and that's pretty much the end of it. Uh, do, do you see what Absolutely, I'm saying? Because it's a great, it's a great analogy because in the medieval scriptorium, the act of copying the gospel was uh, an, a spiritual exercise. It, right. it, it was, it would bring you some kind of illumination to do that. And yeah, from the outside, it's just like you're just making one more copy of the gospel. <laughs> just one more that's right. one more rendition of, you know, Boxwell tempered clavier. That's all that's happening here. Yeah. But from the inside, it right. looks very different. Again, another thing, another right. example of how a lot of things in life look really different from the inside than they do from the outside. And not just Scientology. Other things too. Um 
You mean musicology? No, I, I, I was doing a bad joke. Oh, okay. Scientology right. looks pretty weird from Sorry. the outside, but maybe it looks really cool from I the th- inside. I, I, for a second there, I thought you seriously were making a Freudian slip and referring to <laughs> musicology as Scientology, which would be funny as shit. No, it was, unfortunately, would, it was I intended. I would love that. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I want to return to where I was going with that. That uh, actually, although that was a useful clarification, or at least I feel like it might have been useful, it was kind of a long parenthesis within the point that I wanted to make. Just getting back to your characterization of musicology is the point where affect and concept kind of duke it out. I certainly find that to be true, that we're dealing with an art form that can only ever be partially assimilated to concepts. And yet, you know, how do we do justice to the totality of the art form while at the same time, you know, saying things about it? Like, uh, because we're scholars, you can't just say, yeah, just listen to this recording and make love to it. You go to a musicology class, it's just like a dude's basement with like lava lamps and like incense. And you say, right. okay, check this one out. And you put on a record. That would be cool. Basically, we would just describe my doctoral seminars. but <laughs> Exactly. But, uh, you know, that that's an issue I won't bore the general audience with the substantiating this, but that question comes up again and again and again and again and again. But I was bringing up piano playing, classical piano playing, also as an instance of, at least in my life, of something very similar, which is, you know, I came up playing piano and having a lot of very rationalistic ideas about it and then had the great fortune of working with a kind of pianistic mystic named Michelle Bloch, who really got me to just dwell in the world of affect and sensation. And, you know, from that really important experience for me was born what has become a lifelong kind of koan, uh, mm. a koan that I, I suppose I'll never solve, which is how do you put those two things in the room together, concept and affect, propositional ideas about music versus the person you are, the entity you are when you're playing music. Anyway, maybe I've gone on too long trying to nail down this point, but I suppose it kind of helps me sort of get at one of the problematics of this novel, which is also the fact that, I mean, this is such an Apollonian system. The system developed by this order, it's treating works of the spirit and the imagination in a spirit of pure reason. Yeah. You know, the very idea of being able to abstract figures from pieces of music or gardens or what have you presumes that there is content that's abstractable from these things. And yet at the same time, there's a really important aspect of the glass bead game we haven't talked about, which is the aspect of meditation. That's like a really important well, yeah, part of the glass is, bead game. Yeah. But the, and, and and all of this is just to say that in the setup of the Glass B game, that instability, that unstable interface between concept and affect is maintained. It's still there in the Glass B game. Sorry, you were you. I, I was talking over you no, for no, like no, a long time. No, it's good. Know. It's good. Uh, I just wanted to bring in a, a nuance because you're right that the Glass B game is a kind of rational project, but the Castalian conception of reason isn't what we've seen being kind of espoused and promoted in the last 200 years here 
in the West. Like it's not a detached instrumental reason that they that they pursue. It's reason restored to its kind of source, let's call it, in like logos. Because what does it imply that a particular pattern in a Japanese garden would be able to talk to a constellation which would be able to talk to, a, a, I don't know, a, a motif uh, in, in a piece by Bach. It implies a kind of rational order that's not inside us, but out there in the world, out there in, in our imagination, but also in the physical world, in the very patterning of reality itself. And it's funny because it's, it's hard because on the one level, okay, let's, who are the representatives of the glass bead game in the book? Well, there's Joseph Knecht, there's his friends and the people in his, people who surround him, who seem to espouse different kind of ideological uh, views. And then there's, there's also the narrator and the narrator seems to be very um, favorable to Knecht's way of looking at things. He seems to be one of the apologists who are trying to show how, how important Connect was to the evolution of the game. On the one hand, there is in the hierarchy or the magisterium of Castalia, a sort of dry bureaucratic or like a kind of like political structure that's fossilizing and in danger of becoming uh, brittle, like really brittle. And that's Connect's prophecy at the end is if we don't open up, we're going to fall apart. But it seems to me that this magisterium exists to protect a kind of spiritual practice. So I, it's hard for me to read the glass bead game. I'm not implying that's what you were doing to read Castalia, let's say as a metaphor or an analog for divorced, rational, kind of like a aloof, modern, rational structures of, of inquiry. I don't think that that's what it's supposed to represent. I think it's, I think, right. I think Hesse really saw it as, well, it's hard to say, but I really see it as an attempt to, to already that within the glass bead game and within Castelli, you, you already have a marriage of affect and concept that's really important, that's been achieved. And I think that the reason Connect remains devoted to the order, even when he's seeing the deep problems that are running through it, that the reason is that he believes the glass bead game is one of those great achievements that should be conserved, preserved for as long as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm just saying that the rationalism of the glass bead game, it's much closer to the rationalism of a Plato or Aristotle than the rationalism of like Hume or Locke is all I mean. Sure. Yeah. Just, I guess that's a parenthetical. But just a wrinkle, I guess. Um, I was hoping to bring that back to what you were saying, but now I'm I'm kind of, I feel like I'm finished. (laughs) No, that's a really, I mean, that's an important point. You're quite right uh, that a member of the Castalian order would... I mean, obviously find himself completely lost in our world, which is after all the age of the futon. Um, there's a very sharp distinction to be made between any kind of uh, scholastic academic notion of reason and what these guys are working with. But I think all the better to establish a basic problem that I think attaches to any intellectual or artistic system that at a certain point, it will become esoteric. It will become a practice that is more for its own practitioners than for an audience. And this connects to 
musicology or indeed any academic discipline. This is an idea that's particularly lively in the neoliberal world that we live in that defines value entirely in terms of market value. And so, well, when Jesse Ventura was governor of Minnesota, I remember him blithely remarking that his arts policy was any art that people were willing to pay money for. Well, there's your arts funding. And he, right. <laughs> and he had absolutely no patience for the idea of funding anything that couldn't draw an audience by itself. Well, that obviously means no classical music. It means no jazz. One reason why the term popular music is hard to define what do you do with jazz, which was a popular music at one point, but is now very much an art music like classical music that very much like classical music seems to be at this point more for its practitioners or the true sublimity of it, the tr all the, the really juicy details of its practice exist really only for initiates, for people who are practitioners of the art or very, very refined and learned connoisseurs of the art. And this just seems to happen. I feel like you can see it happening with indie rock, which is feeling more and more like this kind of esoteric pursuit. At least it does to me. When I listen to an album by Deerhoof or something, I'm just sort of like, you know, we're obviously doing the art thing here. And more and more, this is not popular music. This is a, an art music for an increasingly self-isolated Cognoscenti. Yeah. This just happens to artistic media, and it will happen to hip-hop one of these days. And then the question really becomes, that it becomes a matter of preservation. If you decide that what makes art worthy of our attention is the degree to which it can draw that attention from a wide and uninitiated public, then there's no point in supporting classical music or jazz or indeed any academic study because, I mean, with a very few exceptions, the work that academics do is really only comprehensible to and meaningful to other specialists in their field. Yeah. So the fact that the Castalian order has a kind of a metaphysic that is different from ours ultimately allows it to be just this kind of science fictional thing. Like it doesn't have to bear a particularly strict resemblance to anything that now exists. Nevertheless, draw our attention very strongly to the way that sublime artistic creative systems will always tend towards a certain entropy into esotericism. And the question is, what to do at that point? The question on your mind, if you're an academic, or for that matter, a classical musician, the question on your mind is, what do I owe my allegiance to? Right. Is it purely the game? Is it the art form? Is it the subject matter of my discipline? Do I owe it 100% of my allegiance and 0% to the people on the outside out there in the world living their lives who might stand to benefit from it? This is a question that I think is at least at the back of the mind of every working academic or just about. Like the question of 
does my work matter? And if it does, to whom? And in what context? Yeah. If you're a classical musician, you're going to ask, like, am I just playing music for other initiates or am I playing for the people out there who might enjoy this music? If so, how do I reach them? Right. And it's the same thing. Like, you know, academia is very often characterized as a hotbed of extreme leftist agitation. Everybody's an extreme leftist in academia. That's a trope that certainly right-wing media are constantly kind of pushing. And there's a reason why that narrative exists. It's You do find an awful lot of scholars in the humanities, particularly, who define themselves largely in terms of a kind of an activist identity. And they define their scholarship very much in terms of activism. I have no interest in arguing pro or contra the virtues of doing so. It's a very contemporary, it's like very much of our time, yeah. but is a contemporary version of something, a reflex that I think scholars are always going to have. Wanting to find some way that your work counts to build a connection. I mean, shit, the fact that I do this podcast and for more than a decade before we started this podcast, I had this blog, Dial M for Musicology. I have, without ever intending to, I have really defined my life's work by these para-academic projects that are kind of for my colleagues, but they're really kind of for, I don't know, the people, whoever shows up, right? Yeah. And that is my own way of addressing this issue. And I think, you know, people like my dad, who's a scholar of a different generation, was very much more inclined to adopt a kind of new monastic point of view. My dad's attitude, this is back in the 70s, was, you know, the idea that the hoi polloi, the people out there, the unwashed masses, they have no interest in or knowledge of the abstruse problems occupying an academic philosopher. My dad was a philosophy professor. And, you know, my dad belonged to a generation that would affect a kind of elitist disdain for the people out there. Absolutely the inverse, the very opposite of the stance of the activist scholar, but coming from the same place. In the case of scholars like my dad, it was a forcible foreclosing of that nagging question, who is this for? For whom does this matter? If you just militantly say it matters for me and my colleagues, or it matters to me and the five people who are capable of understanding my technical arguments, and that is as it should be because we are standing up for high culture in an era of vulgarity and low standards. Like, that's a different answer to the same question. You know, maybe most people listening to the sound of my voice are thinking, well, that's a pretty shitty answer. Again, I'm not interested in litigating like the pluses and minuses of these different answers. All I'm just saying is one way or another, just about everybody working in a glass bead game type situation is going to ask that question. They're tasked with finding an answer.
the question of the relevance of one's work, I think, is a valid and important question. And I think when Ventura frames that question purely in terms of marketability, he's providing a caricature of a real problem, which is that right. what difference am I making here? That's yeah. an important question. You know, that's a question we should all ask ourselves, I think, once in a while. What difference are we making here? At the same time, it's funny because my only point of comparison is my um, continuing, my, my love of, uh, of, of RPGs, which is by almost all standards, a complete waste of my time. It's only recently that I've begun to be able to monetize or, or actually like to not just monetize, but to actually give some substance to this practice of mine outside of the table where I meet my friends to play. And yet, because I'm, I run the games, it's really time consuming. Like I put a lot of work into the game and I've had a lot of interests in my life. You know, my, my two principal interests have been like reading and thinking and, and writing, but also I was for a long time, I aspired to making dramatic films. I was asked recently what I do for a living and it's, it's really hard. In fact, my daughter was asked that question by one of her friends at school and she didn't know what to tell her friend that her, her dad did. She's like, well, he's a podcaster. He's a writer. He's a teacher. He's a, you know, all kinds of, she had all this, this list of things. So, but at the center of it all for me has always been this obsession with a particular hobby and sometimes it's felt like one, a player of mine once told me, my stepbrother Jerry once said, sometimes life just feels like a bunch of obstacles to the next role-playing session, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, because, you know, once you get bitten by that hobby, it's, it is quite magical. And it is, in a weird way, a way of bringing all the disparate interests that I have together. My point being that it's an important question to ask how is what I'm doing now, whether it's what you're doing on your own time or whether what you're doing at work, how is it relevant? It kind of reminds me of our discussion we had, I think it was in the Zushai episode when we talked about Benjamin's idea of ritual value versus exhibition value. Exhibition value is the value that Jesse Ventura can get behind. You know, it's the value that, that derives from the success of a particular work or performance in the public sphere, the appreciation it gets. Ritual value, which Benjamin didn't really believe existed in any real sense because he was an atheist, is the value of the work to the gods, meaning the value of the work in itself to nature. What difference does it make in the cosmos, even if nobody who's actually living in a human body sees it? And it's fairly clear, I think, that a lot of the most ancient art was made by people working in cramped subterranean chambers where they knew very few others would see the work, if anyone would see it at all. It's possible that some of this work was not intended to be seen, that it was almost like a form of sigil magic where you make the work and you leave it and it's doing its thing in the world all the better for not being seen. You're talking about like the artists of the Chauvet cave. Yeah, the cave artists. Moscow exactly. So yeah, yeah, exactly. And certainly there are examples in the ancient world of statues that were hidden, right? Egyptian or in various Semitic cultures would have statues that were made by a sculptor and then hidden away and no one ever saw them. Sometimes maybe a priest right. would see them once a year. Right. 
so I think when we ask ourselves the questions of the relevance of our work, we have to realize this distinction. There's the relevance of our work in terms of its exhibition value, of how appreciated it is by others and how important it is to others. And then there may be this other question of what is the ritual value of my work? What difference does it make in the cosmos, even if only I am aware of its existence? And to me, it seems like Hesse is suggesting, kind of opening a space to rethink, to reconceptualize, reconsider the possibility of some kind of ritual value in intellectual and artistic pursuits. And maybe that's where a third way, not the kind of we are the elite and we must kind of castellate ourselves and, and protect ourselves from the unwashed masses that would tear us down if they could, or the I'm an activist and therefore I have to show how the English literature that I fell in love with as a child is actually just a cesspool of fascism that I have to um, – I, I, the only way I can make like it relevant, and, I have to, yeah, yeah, I have to disenchant and critique and that's the way I make it – that's how I make it relevant. Maybe there's a third way and it has something to do with what does it mean to do anything creative at all? What difference does it make in the cosmos? that you're doing this now, whether or not it's intended for a market or an audience. I don't know if that's a promising avenue, but it seems, I yeah. love, I love where you've taken this conversation. This is awesome. I think we're getting down to brass tacks here. I mean, for one thing, it reveals, I think, basic theme of this novel, a basic problem of this novel, which is the question of like, what is the value of culture? The age of the photon, whatever else it may be, uh, may have been, from the point of view of this future society, was an era of debasement of culture, where culture had no value except as the adornment of products, as a kind of public relations or advertising or like, you know, an editorial existing so that you have something to put on a newspaper or so that people buy the newspaper like. But from that point of view, culture has no value other than exhibition value. And the question is like, what is the value of culture if nobody's watching? What is the value of culture in a culture, in a society, even when it has no demonstrable utilitarian value. So I thought it was really great that you brought in role-playing games. I have no idea how much work you're putting as a DM. We're doing a game right now that you authored and we're we're playtesting. Co-author with Peter Peter. Peter Biebergall, the author of Strange Frequencies, a book I recommend to our listeners. We haven't finished the scenario yet, but it's really, really, really fun. It's awesome. But it's funny because like, I have no idea what kind of work goes into it. I don't know how the sausage is made. I am a relatively inexperienced role-playing gamer. And so I'm sort of like, you were like, you know, I'll put 10 hours of work into this and the other players will be like, yeah, it was fun. Thanks. See you. Bye. Uh, and I'm, I am doubtless one of those assholes. I have but no like, problem then, with that. <laughs> I don't expect an No, but applause. that's just the condition. Yeah. But that's the condition of culture. Yeah, exactly. That is the condition of culture. That is what it is to be an artist. That is what it is to be an academic. That's what it is to play the glass bead game. There is a lack of transparency between the inside and the outside. What it is to be on the inside of the culture and how that culture looks on the outside. And 
The question is, when there is always that impedance, that thing that gets in the way of transmitting the knowledge of the inside, the esoteric, to the exoteric, to the outside, what are the reasons that a culture, that a society is going to come up with to permit that? And to get back to RPGs, this plays out in the life of a household. So you're a father of two young girls and the husband of your wife and the son of your mother, and you have these different familial obligations. And if you're like, okay, I got to go and take the entire weekend off to do game shit, like that is a big ask of your family. And that's not to say that your family is going to say no or that your family is going to veto that, but there has to be some sense of like, yeah, but there must be a reason why we would value it, even though we're not playing the game, even though we don't even really know what you're doing. And even over though there. it doesn't pay the bills. And even though it doesn't pay the bills, likewise, this podcast, like we're making a little bit of money now through the Patreon, but for the first couple of years, this was entirely free and we weren't monetizing it. And we were spending each of us at least 20 hours of our week to put this thing together. And our families quite reasonably might ask, yeah, but what for? Like, what justifies this? And you and I both are fortunate that we have really supportive families where that question was never asked. There was just a kind of a basic belief in us that it must have some value. Well, it seems to make you happy. So maybe that's a a value or reason to uphold it. But basically within the little miniature society of a family, there are cultural things that enter And they have to justify themselves one way or another within the values of that family. And what goes for the micro society of a family goes for the macro society of a society of the world that we live in. Yeah, very well put. Yeah. So the question really becomes a value of like what justifies art? And we do live in an age that seemingly has forgotten any justification other than either something to do with politics or something to do with money. Yeah. Exactly. Now we're hitting on a, a, a vein that runs through the whole podcast. And I, I mentioned the Zushai episode earlier. There are other episodes where we've discussed this that I think that you and I seem to agree that art made in perfect solitude. Let's imagine oh, there's that one. I can't remember his name. He's an artist who will arrange certain, he'll take a walk, like hike out in the woods somewhere. I think he's British. And he'll Andy Goldsworthy. Yeah, that's the guy. And he'll, yeah, he'll make like a you know a circle of stones, or he'll he'll just arrange or a nature cairn or something. A cairn, yeah, a cairn, or or, or, or a snow throw where he'll grab a handful of snow, throw it up in the air, and photograph it. Yeah. And he gets these incredible shapes, yeah. which are just made from that evanescent moment. I guess that because he takes a photograph, it kind of it extends into outside of his own experience into the world. But what if an artist were to do that? And not show, you know, uh, yeah. the, the cairn to anyone. Or even leave the cairn and then watch the tide just take it apart. In that case, I, would, I don't think anyone would object to the characterization of something like that as a ritual, you know? Yes, a, a ritual absolutely. Is, a ritual is art that you do for the gods or for God. So you're creating a little aesthetic moment and it's not intended for consumption and its value comes from that can we still have that 
in our society? Is there a way for that to become a possibility? Well, obviously it can. Uh, anyone who's, who has a religious practice will agree that it can. However, if culture itself hinges on our salvaging some sense of that, then what are the implications for a secular culture? Is a secular culture incapable of finding ritual value in art and in creativity? Yeah. Do we have to become a religious culture again? That's kind of the question that Hesse is asking. That's right? a huge question. Yeah. There's the alliance of Castalia with the Roman Catholic Church in the book, which is kind of a ballsy thing to propose because, first of all, a lot of people in 1943 would have thought that there'd be no more Catholic Church in 100 years. Um, mm. And here we are almost 100 years later, and there still is. And Hesse is suggesting that in 400 years, it will not only still be around, but be have found a new kind of lease on life at that point. Now, that's, mm. that's a big ask, I think, for most people today, that, to ask us to believe something like that. Um, right. But there's a reason why he insists on this alliance of Eastern spirituality, Western spirituality, and rational inquiry. Yes. What he's telling us is that our secular culture, without necessarily succumbing to or converting to one or the other of the existing faiths, has to become spiritualized, has to become a kind of religious thing. We have to retrieve some notion of the divine in order that our culture can survive. That is a controversial thing. That's just putting it flippantly. It's not controversial. It's deeply problematic, I guess, for a lot of people. What do you think of that? I mean, we're in the territory, or Hesse, on this account, is in the same territory as Alain de Paton in his Religion for Atheists. Because de Paton, in that book, points out that there are a lot of things. For example, ritual. That religion has a kind of a lock-on that has no secure place in a secular society. In a secular humanist society, the question is, where can we go to find the fruits of religion, the satisfactions of ritual, for instance, or the feeling of belonging not only to a human tribe, but a kind of cosmic order that the works of the spirit vouchsafes. And we've talked about it I can't remember if we talked about it on the flagship show or on the Patreon, but we sort of making fun of it a little bit because some of what he supposes, he, he at one point says something like uh, evangelical churches have this kind of call and response where people will be moved by the spirit and call out praise Jesus or whatever in response to readings of scripture. And he's like, you know, how about like praise Jane Austen or Charles Darwin or something like that. And, you know, in moments like that, I feel like the challenge, I'm going to put it nicely. I'm not going to make fun of him too much. I kind of respect what he's trying to do, trying to find some basis in the sacred for secular life. But I just don't find that particular answer to be at all convincing, like at all. But nevertheless, at the point I was going to make, though, is that just to amplify what you were saying, Hesse is trying to imagine, trying to picture what that would look like, a secular and humanist kind of religiosity within which 
culture can take its place and find its value in society. See, this is where I think Hesse is onto something. Again, I'm going to repeat the phrase. We, uh, I, I, I think I, I'm the, the one who uses it most of the time. We're not modern enough. I think that implicit in our secular culture is already a kind of religiosity. I mm. certainly feel it when I visit a museum. Mm. It's not my religion, mind you, but it's a, I f- it feels religious. When I read the work of certain atheists, I feel a certain religiosity. I'll never forget that passage in, I think it's in The God Delusion, where Dawkins says something like, some people describe me as profoundly religious. And this is him acknowledging that the way he writes about nature requires a religious language. His admiration, and this is something I'll give to Dawkins. It's an ecstatic vision. It's an ecstatic vision of order, inexplicable order. I think many, many scientists would agree that the universe exhibits inexplicable order. Yep. I think that once you've made that acknowledgement, you're already standing on religious territory. It's not a matter of claiming that there is this or that God behind that order. Because I think what you realize when talking about the difference between inside and outside, when you're inside a Western monotheism, the so-called God that these particular monotheists, whether they're Muslims or Jews or, or Christians or Baha'i or whatever, the particular God they worship is not a Christian or a Jewish or a Muslim God. It's something that one calls God out of necessity because there's no other word for it. It's an, right. it, The God of a monotheist is a God by analogy with localized pagan divinities, okay? And even within the pagan, modern paganism, I would argue even some forms of ancient paganism were fundamentally kind of oriented towards a unitary divinity, a unitary divine. Even people like Julian the Apostate or certainly Plato and the Neoplatonists spoke of God in the singular. This is not worshiping a particular God, like like offering sacrifice to Moloch or Baal or something like that. It's in within the tradition of monotheism, there's a distinction between what those cults were doing, whether or not they were actually doing it, it's another issue, and what they're trying to accomplish. So what I'm saying is that what a secular person who has invested spiritual energy into either the production, the practice, or the appreciation of science and what science reveals about the world, the space they're in is, I think, already a religious space. And I think maybe Hesse, what he's trying to say is that it's just a matter of time before we are able to acknowledge this implicit religiosity of secular culture. And perhaps that's what's going to resolve a lot of the tensions between the secular culture and the various religions, which are not going anywhere. They're going to stay. So whatever the solution is for how we achieve world peace, it's going to have to include the religions. And likewise, the various religions would have to find, see what I'm trying to talk about here, which is the implicit religiosity of the secular science project, let's call it, you know, the the inquiry into nature that presupposes, as a matter of course, as a necessary axiom, the inexplicable intelligibility of nature as such. Once you've, you've made that assumption, once you've assumed that nature is somehow intelligible, I think you've already crossed the line outside of any kind of putative secularism that I think is actually really rarely espoused 
in especially in specialized fields where people are, are have a skin in the game. This is the part in the early part of the book in the chapter titled The Call, where the music master, who is Joseph's first real influence, his first real teacher, and remains his true teacher throughout the book. This is where the music master first teaches Joseph meditation. And one of the few places in literature I can think of where an act of meditation is actually described in any kind of detail, even though it's a made-up invented system of meditation. I find it fascinating. Something to remember about the glass bead game, this is a really important point, is that the glass bead game is never performed without periods of meditation. So talking about the place of culture in a society, the great event of the glass bead game is an annual festival. And we get the sense from the narrator that at the time of Joseph Knecht's magisterhood, that the game is already somewhat fallen from its golden age, that at one point, everything in this whole society would grind to a halt and people would be, you know, listening to their radios. This is, you know, the most advanced communications technology has existed when this book was written, the radio. So Hasse imagines people glued to their radios, following every move of the glass bead game, and the event takes place over several weeks with all kinds of ritual and pomp and ceremony, and even in its somewhat fallen off days, the game still is celebrated in something of this way, and there's a description of how episodes of playing the game alternate with episodes of meditation. And the meditation is part of the festival, right? So it's shown to us from early on that meditation and the game are really inextricable from one another. So this is where Joseph first learns meditation from the music master. You will soon be entering another stage, the master said. There you will learn all sorts of new things, some of them very pleasant. Probably you'll begin dabbling in the glass beat game before long. All that is very fine and important, but one thing is more important than anything else. You are going to learn meditation there. Supposedly all the students learn it, but one can't go checking up on them. I want you to learn it properly and well, just as well as music. Then everything else will follow of its own accord. Therefore, I'd like to give you the first two or three lessons myself. That was the purpose of my invitation." So today and tomorrow and the day after tomorrow, let us try to meditate for an hour each day and moreover on music. This is so the, the master leaves, Knecht drinks some milk uh, that he is given. And so this is still on page 78. Now the magister turned on his chair and placed his hands on the piano. He played a theme and carried it forward with variations. It seemed to be a piece by some Italian master. He instructed his guests to imagine the progress of the music as a dance, 
a continuous series of balancing exercises, a succession of smaller or larger steps from the middle of an axis of symmetry, and to focus his mind entirely on the figure which these steps formed. He played the bars once more, silently reflected on them, played them again, then sat quite still, hands on his knees, eyes half closed, without the slightest movement, repeating and contemplating the music within himself. His pupil, too, listened within himself, saw fragments of lines of notes before him, saw something moving, something stepping, dancing, and hovering, and tried to perceive and read the movement as if it were the curves in the line of a bird's flight. The pattern grew confused, and he lost it. He had to begin over again. For a moment his concentration left him, and he was in a void. He looked around and saw the master's still, abstracted face floating palely in the twilight, found his way back again to that mental space he had drifted out of. He heard the music sounding in it again, saw it striding along, saw it inscribing the line of its movement, and followed in his mind the dancing feet of the invisible dancers. Wow. It's beautiful. Yeah. And it doesn't correspond to any meditation that I've ever done. Hesse made it up. And yet at the same time, it is recognizable as a meditative exercise, as a kind of internalization of the glass bead game where figures are abstracted from things and then put into play with other figures. But it becomes like the beautiful inner reflection of the game, the esoteric inmost essence of an esoteric game. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It reminds me of the Western Christian concept of meditation, which is slightly different, I think, from the Eastern one, which is you always meditate. I know that the, these forms of meditations exist in, in India as well, that you meditate on something and then mm -hmm. you, it, you put tremendous effort into the meditation and then you let go. And then there's this moment where I can't, I think it's called the forgetting the terms, forgetting everything today. Uh, of Christian meditation, Sorry. but it reminded me of that anyways, of like uh, ic mm. icon meditations in the Greek Orthodox Church or something like that. Oh, yeah. Or like visualization meditations, which one finds particularly in, I think, the Tibetan tradition. Yeah, the Vajrayana. No expert in that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Where you have to visualize an entity in hallucinatory detail. Yeah. And the idea is to get to the point where you're no longer even effortfully maintaining this image. The image becomes autonomous. And uh, supposedly there are magical consequences of that, that you can actually, this is how a tulpa can be generated, right? A tulpa that, being that a, yeah, a kind of egregore. Oh, where sorry? You, no, I just want, so if people don't know what a tulpa is, it's like you create an entity, an imaginary or imaginal entity. And the, the idea in Vajrayana is that, or in, in Tantra, I guess, is that you can then actually stop thinking about it and it keeps existing. It can actually manifest physically even. Um, right. Yeah. But the thing is that there's nothing in the description of meditation that is particularly religious. Like just my account of that practice of visualization in meditation has a, a religious aroma because you're like meditating on a deity or visualizing a deity or some object of devotion. But in the glass bead game meditation, it's just music. Yeah. Right? It's, it's purely a, aesthetic. Yeah. Right. It's, exactly. It's, it's, it's appreciating art as a spiritual enterprise. It's, it's what right. I was trying spiritual to- Spiritual and rational. Yeah. It's what I was trying to uh, convey to the people who took that class I gave in, in the summer you know, at one point I was thinking of calling it Lectio Divina. Like, how do you engage in a Lectio Divina, divine reading, while you're reading, let's say, Moby Dick or Hamlet? I think that Hesse's 
giving us a picture of a culture that has found a way to approach the aesthetic in a kind of non-denominational, non-dogmatic, yet deeply religious way. Yeah. It's fascinating to me because it is impossible to keep the spiritual out. Right, whatever we mean by spiritual, which is a word I dislike. But no, me too. Sometimes no, it's necessary. No, yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's no other word that really means the same thing in the English language, so we're sort of stuck with it. Yeah. This is maybe an answer to Alain de Patton. How do we take from religion and put it in secular society? I mean, your line: the problem is that we're not modern enough. Sort of gets it a possible answer that's emerging from our conversation, which is like, we are always doing that, that the religious or the spiritual is implicit simply in contemplative behavior. I have found this like, you know, there's a movement of what's called contemplative pedagogy, which is interesting to me. And it's people who come from a variety of contemplative traditions, some of them Eastern, some of them Western, Every now and then we'll do a contemplative practice, especially in my music since 1960 class. So like in summer 2019, I think I taught that class and there's a piece by Steve Reich. I don't even remember which one, but I wanted us to have a conversation about it. And I wanted people to listen to it with fresh ears and not go in with like, you know, a half pint full of received ideas, stuff that you would have learned in your undergraduate music history courses. I just wanted to really get people to like listen to the thing and dig their own response to the thing. And I forget what the prompt was, but basically having them listen to this piece and concentration, doing nothing, and then spending several minutes afterwards writing down just thoughts, reflections. And that's not the most crazy prompt by any means. In fact, it would be entirely possible to frame that outside of contemplative pedagogy. It's just a thing that you might want to do in your classroom. But what was interesting was that in the focus on like intense engagement with the music, intense perception, and that the music fills the whole of your consciousness. You're not trying to do anything other than be with the music. You're not trying to hold on to received ideas or you're not consumed with the idea of like taking things out of the listening situation that you can then instrumentalize in some way. Like, oh, I have to have a good answer for the teacher when we get done with listening to this. Like really setting it up that way. There are one or two students who wrote in the journal that I asked them to keep what an overwhelming emotional experience they had doing this, something that they were not expecting in a class. And I'm not saying this to kind of brag like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm such a great teacher. I stage managed this amazing transformative moment for them or anything like that. But rather just like even a whiff of contemplation in a purely secular context, and I certainly run my classes in a purely secular way imports that little whiff of that thing beyond, the thing worth fighting for, the thing worth preserving, the thing that the order, the Castalian order exists to preserve, the thing that justifies the existence of culture in the public square. The little taste of that can come in in that moment of contemplative absorption in the thing itself. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. 
You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and, of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening.